Hello and welcome to another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. I'm Timothy Neal, an Alfred Deakin postdoctoral research fellow at Deakin University, and I'm here with my co-host David Border-Giles, lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University. Today we are joined here in my home by two esteemed guests, Nico Besnia and Ghassan Haj. Nico is Professor of Cultural Anthropology at the University of Amsterdam and this year and last year Research Professor in the Department of Social Inquiry at La Trobe University here in Melbourne. He has an extraordinary list of achievements to mention, including that he is the author of books such as On the Edge of the Global, Modern Anxieties in a Pacific Island Nation, and Gossip and the Everyday Production of Politics. He's written prolifically on topics of gender, sexuality, and sport in the Pacific, and he is editor-in-chief of the journal American Ethnologist. Ghassan is, amongst other things, Future Generation Professor of Anthropology at the University of Melbourne. He's the author of four books, including White Nation, Fantasies of White Supremacy in an, a Multicultural Society, and most recently, Is Racism an Environmental Threat? He's edited several more influential books, been the president of the Australian Anthropological Society, and held more visiting fellowships at illustrious institutions than we have time to mention. So thank you very much, Nico and Ghassan, for joining us. And uh, as we like to usually begin, we like to start with uh, how did you get into this business or racket question? So how did you find your way into anthropology? Perhaps, Nico, you should go first, because uh, I know your path kind of went from linguistics to anthropology. Is that right? Uh, it's even more complicated than that, actually. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in mathematics. Uh, and then uh, I went into linguistics because I didn't want to be like my professors, uh, my math professors, uh, who were all very strange. And, and uh, so, and I wanted to, uh, uh, to do what uh, actually I was dreaming of in, in childhood, namely uh, uh, go places. And so I first went into linguistics, but very quickly um, was doing linguistic anthropology and, and was taking anthropology courses, uh, Michelle Rosaldo had a very uh, strong uh, impact on, on, on my intellectual um, childhood, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I studied with a linguistic anthropologist uh, for, for, the, for my PhD, namely Elena Oakes. Um, and, and so in fact, the, 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 the transition was really from undergrad to postgrad, uh, from mathematics, from pure science to uh, what squishy science uh, of the kind that we uh, we practice. Um, so I, as a kid, I was I mean I was already sort of looking at books in Chinese and 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 you know was furious when my father didn't take a job in Hong Kong and and so uh, you know this is really what yeah, the allure of of the exotic really and then I realized that the exotic is actually problematic eventually. <laughs> so, There's enough of a lure to, to bring you <laughs> exactly. in. Exactly. And how did you get your start in anthropology? Well, I actually started uh, doing medical studies and uh, I've uh, always maintained that uh, one of the best things that happened to me when I moved from Beirut to Sydney was the fact that I wasn't with my parents and uh, I could ask myself the question, why am I doing medicine? Uh, because had I been stayed in Lebanon, I would have been a classic Lebanese boy who would have done medicine and just etc. So, so it was a wonderful thing. And at the time, Macquarie University was uh, still living its 1968 ethos. Oh. So you could actually just go and do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And I just went to Macquarie and I did computing, mathematics, philosophy, sociology, uh, French literature. I did the most amazing amalgam of things. And slowly I started kind of like working Middle East, Middle East, but there was only Middle East politics. And I, w I had a very interesting uh, relation with anthropology. One person, his name is Ian Bedford, uh, and he actually ended up marking my honours thesis and marking my PhD thesis. So Ian uh, had a great influence uh, on me, um, just in terms of uh, the flair he brought into uh, things, even though Middle East was only taught at Macquarie in politics. I had to be in politics. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, basically 
Uh, the first job I got, uh, I was asked to teach other cultures. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this subject called other cultures, you know, after the book. Oh, all right. Okay. And then, uh, really, it was kind of like swimming totally in anthropology through teaching. Did you have to break it to your parents at some point? I made this anthropologist. I don't wait a lot, me. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents, of course, uh, they had to know that I'm not going to pursue uh, medicine. It wasn't easy for them. And it was a huge disappointment. <laughs> well, one among many. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask a sort of follow-up to that because I'm always interested in, uh, you know, not not just the sort of the academic trajectory, but what are the uh, what are the sort of personal. Uh, ethical and biographical commitments that make us open to anthropology in the first place. So in both of your work, one of the things that I have really appreciated and and sort of resonated with is the question of the global. And so I wonder what is it that makes the global a concern for both of you? In In a way, I mean, sort of the global is a concern for all of us now. So what, what is it about you that drew you to that question? Mm. Well, I think that there is a personal involvement, and I think it's one that I share with Ghassan. He can uh, confirm uh, or not. Uh, but it's one of being sort of a, this, this, this uh, creature of cosmopolitanism that we both yeah. are. I confirm. Uh, I confirm. Yeah, very good. Um, and uh, so I grew up in many different places with more or less multilingually. Um, Ghassan can talk about his own trajectory, uh, which is, you know, uh, comparable. Um, and I think that a sensibility to, to the non-local, let's put it that way, is, was, was part of this upbringing of, of not really belonging anywhere uh, but at the same time, being able to place make, to make uh, one's nest uh, in, in, in very different places. Uh, so I think this is the, 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 the per- my, my personal involvement in some of these questions. What does it mean to, and, and, and at the same time, to be extremely curious about what it means to be really anchored in one place for whatever reason, because of ideology, because of uh, politics, uh, belonging to one nation party, uh, about which Gassan can talk more, or or simply being anchored in one place because of poverty, uh, not being able to cross the Sahara to get some awful job in Europe. So I think that that you know the 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 this experience is is of enormous uh, curiosity for me. And I mean, I, it's probably going to sound tried that 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 at this point in anthropology, we simply cannot bypass uh, the global, even for question that the questions that uh, appear to be v- very local. I mean, that's that's sort of a uh, a received idea at this point that I think that uh, uh, is nevertheless very important to engage with. So my my own work, uh, which we'll probably will have time to talk about, is is precisely on these connections that are. Uh, sometimes Im- improbable, um, and I think that you know the, the, this 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 sense of of surprise in the turn that uh, the lives of ordinary people can take is is very very interesting. Yes, I mean obviously obviously uh, one thinks about the global the, as someone born in Lebanon, gone to Australia to finish my studies and then end up staying. (laughs) But uh, I also always think that, and I don't think I'm saying anything new, the global is always located locally, you know. So it's not that I ever felt when I was in Beirut that I was not global and I had to wait to migrate to feel global, you know. Mm. You know, in Beirut I was listening to rock and roll, uh, French music, my grandparents in Australia were sending me kangaroos and koala bears, uh, furry toys, of course, not, <laughs> not the real thing. <laughs> and, That's very uh, normal, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and politics, uh, media, uh, etc. So, global. But at the same time, I think global is interesting. It, it has the same problem as 
location in anthropology in the sense that you go and do your field work and you say, I'm doing my field work in uh, Lebanon. But where are you actually doing your field work? Uh, which, which street, which village, and how does it end up translated as Lebanon? So I presume most of us have very partial experiences, which we call global. Yeah, yeah. That, that was a follow-up question I was going to ask. Is uh, you know, and you've both written about the global, but in some very different contexts. So, is does the well, is the global a different thing in both of those contexts? Yes. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that that there's there's a question. Well, an old anthropological question: <laughs> Is it is it ethical emic? <laughs> Are we talking about people's uh, consciousness of the global as we are analyzing them mm. and as we are interacting with them in our own consciousness, or are we imagining ourselves hovering over social processes and saying this is a global, mm-hmm. uh, global thing? And I think both, you know, have uh, they have their lineage mm. and their valid. Uh, ways of of thinking. I don't think we need to choose between uh, Mm. one uh, or the other. But, I mean, I'm very, very uh, sort of like at the moment, so I'm going through my ethnography of a Lebanese village. And, you know, uh, sort of like one funny moment uh, I came in this village. So a lot of the people in this village migrate to Harris Park, which is near Parramatta in Sydney. And so most of the people to go to Harris Park, they get to Sydney airport and they go along Parramatta Road. And so somebody pinched a Parramatta Road sign (laughs) and took it to the village. And using GPS in the middle of the village, there's actually a sign that says Parameter Road, you know. <laughs> and you have to think that people in this village grow up looking and saying, that's a way to Harris Park, you know. So, so, like, <laughs> so global, local. Mm-hmm. It's a very different road mm-hmm. to Damascus. Road yeah. to if, if I can elaborate on this, I mean, you know, ethnographically, we've got sort of classic cases of people who live globally, but remain incredibly anchored in 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 place. I mean, the the image that we have in the media and that sociologists mostly have written about of the um, the, the the cosmonaut, the wealthy Hong Kong uh, executive who parks his parachute uh, uh, children in Sydney, in Auckland, in Vancouver. And really has very, very little interest in in becoming sort of a cosmopolitan citizen, enjoying, you know, different foods and different companies and different the company of different people and so on. I mean, this is not what he uh, uh, is 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 about. I mean, he just wants to make his money, pay as few taxes as possible, as little tax as possible. Uh, and remain embedded and probably it is, it is actually interesting how 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 little people talk about boring cosmopolitan yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> sort of like, exactly sort of like yeah. you never you yeah. Know, yeah as if it's impossible but then but then you contrast that with uh, i mean in ethnography i like a lot is uh, uh, gordon matthews uh, the building of the center of the world i think it's called where you have all these african traders you know who speak multiple languages who go through uh, chunkin mansions in hong kong uh, apparently something like 70% of all the cell phones that are uh, floating around africa uh, have gone through that building at some point so um <laughs> So you, so that's a different kind of. I mean, it's it's a cosmopolitanism because they don't have a choice. They have to be, they have to learn Chinese, they and Cantonese and multiple other languages because, and and at the same time probably enjoy part of it. It I'm sure it's not just uh, a, a duty. So you you have these two contrasting uh, cases, which I think really nicely um the contrast is very nice is is a good illustration of how 
global, being global can mean extremely different things for different groups. This takes us nicely to a, another point about global cosmopolitanism or another topic, which is sport. We've recently had the conclusion of the World Game, the World Cup, I should say, of the World Game. Who are you supporting is, is, is one question, but another question is, You've both paid attention to sport and its 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 relationships to race and gender. So, how has sport filtered through uh, your work? I mean, obviously, Nico, you've written books on the anthropology of sport, but I guess um, let's ask a bigger question: What is sport today? We probably supported the same team, actually. <laughs> I, I supported no team. I mean, it, it's not the kind of it's not the kind of Emotional involvement that I I'm I'm uh, I'm really that interested. In. I, I hardly watched it actually because I'm too busy with journal editing. But uh, right. um, but I mean uh, <laughs> he just writes about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, also I'm sort of more interested. I am interested in global events, these mega events, uh, in part through my association with uh, my friend Susan Brownell, who is has written some extremely interesting things about what the Olympics and the World Cup, uh, what it represents for uh, the people who are involved in it um, uh, and people who watch it and so on. Apparently, there are more, more people, more executives and politicians at, uh, uh, at attending the Olympics than, the, than Davos. Uh, so it's, it's obviously something extremely important. But... I'm actually interested at, at the other end of sport, namely not the elite, uh, uh, global elites, but also the, the young people who try to break in, in into sport. You, you know, I can play the number of saying I watch soccer because I'm interested in ritual, etc. But I watch, I watch this. I mean, I watch soccer because I love watching soccer. And it's a real good waste of time and very relaxing and... And, uh, you know, and then so happened, so I was in Amsterdam for most of the games, so, 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 so I could watch it uh, without having to get up in the middle of the night here in Australia. But when I got back uh, from Amsterdam, uh, I was having serious jet lag, so I started watching the game it prolonged my jet lag let's <laughs> let's say it this way because i insisted on maintaining my jet lag until the game finished mm. now you know, there's many interesting things i find about it uh, about sport uh, to make me think about uh, not just issues of racism and issues actually i find it a bit predictable the stuff like on on the stuff that was done about uh, the french team being african etc yeah okay uh, I don't mind, but like I actually watching this game, I created a new word, which I think is critical, and it's a bit playful. But I've been using it. I haven't published it yet. But I mean, which yeah, is yeah, which yeah. is which which is called Nimaring, and it's uh, the idea that you are so fragile, and you actually drop. Whenever somebody touches you, you drop, you drop, mm -hmm. kind of like, and this kind of like technique of falling, and you know, oh, and sort of like, oh, I'm so hurt, mm -hmm. etc. And I think a lot of people were really pissed off with Neymar when he was doing it, but I think they were, they were partly pissed off because he captures the needles of our time, you know. There's so many people who are, don't touch me, mm. kind of like, oh no, I'm, I'm hurt, uh, uh, etc. And, and so I think uh, so the, the idea of naming is the idea that mm. there are so many people out there playing the sensitive number. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of naming is behind <laughs> the white right. Yeah, mm. you know, I mean, oh no, I'm so, I'm so bullshit, you know. White fragility. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, like I watch for pure fun, but I draw from it a lot of things that I find uh, allow me to think other things. Yeah. Mm. There, but I that's mean, not I why I watch it. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. That, I mean, this, this is the attraction of them. They're, they're a vast social event which we get to spy on, in fact, we have extraordinary access to uh, via news media as well as now via social media. One of the things I've, I've been curious about is whether sport is 
or whether these games just become a, a, a sort of tertiary expression of other uh, other issues, or whether sport as a global uh, public or sport as a, a global politics enables something else. I was thinking about this when you were talking about the number of politicians who attend right. the games, right? So it's a, right. it's, a, it's it's a political mode of gathering, sure. and they're doing something in a way comparable to what they do at Davos. Uh-huh. Well, it's a, it's a politics that's completely submerged in, in neoliberalism. And in the last uh, year or so, I've, I've really done some sort of recent history and have been, um, have been really thinking quite hard about what's happened to sport, particularly in the 1980s, when um, television became privatized, um, engendering sort of this domino effect of of events that, you know, privatized television owned by Murdoch and company have to fill the air. This is when um, reality television arises uh, with a vengeance. And this is where sport actually comes in very handy to fill this airtime. Because at the beginning, at least, it's very cheap. It's unscripted. You don't have to pay anyone. It changes very quickly, of course. And so it changes, in fact. And this is when the amount of money uh, that you have to pay actually to broadcast it and um, and pass it on, of course, to the viewers and to the sponsors. The sponsors come in. So, you, you know, there's this entire um, edifice of, of related phenomena that is taking place that creates a very different animal called sport than it was in the 1960s. I mean, I still remember... You know, when we did have a, a black and white television with two channels, right? And 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 sport was really a, a very very minor part of what is broadcast in in those channels in 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 Europe. And suddenly, I mean, if you sort of flip through channels in in the average Western country, I mean, sport fills in probably a third of, of what's going on, right? So I think, you know, what happened in this transformation that is both economic and I think deeply political in a, in a, in, in, in a way that's hidden under the neoliberalism, I think. And then uh, the transformation is also the fact that young people are watching this in the most remote corners of the world, which is something that is new, that dates back to the 1990s, when uh, when satellite television arises. So you have a technological component. And so suddenly in the villages of Africa, right, there is one TV, uh, you pay 20 cents to watch it for the afternoon or the evening in a bar or a social club. You know, the local entrepreneur has bought it and, and kids come and watch it. And they absorb all these images of fame, watching their compatriots or people of the same race, having achieved this enormous, uh, this enormous uh, visibility in the world. So I think that this is where the politics is taking place. And then, and then the future changes, right? The meaning of the future changes for these kids. And I think this is what is really interesting, Coming, going back to actually the, the relationship between the, the local and the global. So this is where I think there is, there, there is something quite dramatic and quite sad in some ways, because then there is the abandonment of other forms that the future might take. That's yeah. interesting. interesting for me, actually, because that's one of the things I'm working on now in my diaspora project, so one of the chapters which I consider something very minor, that not many people have spent enough time thinking about, which is the fact, when is it in the Lebanese village? So these Lebanese villages, so I'm working in Christian villages, so they've always had knowledge of Rome, of Christianity globally, so it's not that they didn't have a global consciousness, but at one point, these people would say, I can make a living in the world. So it's not about just being conscious of the world. It's being conscious of the world as a place where you can invest yourself. So it's no longer, where am I going to make a life for myself in the village or in the town next to the village? It's a moment when you start saying, I can make a life for myself anywhere in the world. And 
a huge shift of consciousness, this idea. And in a sense, what you are describing in a uh, yeah. way is that this person watching soccer, watching, watching football, and saying, so, I can play football, right. I can realize myself. Yeah. Yeah, But then the the cruel optimism of, of, of the fact that it you know for most people it doesn't it doesn't doesn't work. Yeah. So the the people you were talking about before Nico that you've done work with people who are attempting to get into these these global circulations are imagining themselves as a certain kind of yeah global citizen to be. Right. It's a horizon that they yeah are not going to reach. And so when I was at Macquarie, actually just a few weeks ago, I I. I I had the enormous pleasure of re-knowing uh, um, my uh, deep friendship with Michael Jackson, who is a very close friend of In fact, we met through Michael Jackson. And he was saying, well, maybe you're... Uh, I mean, he made me think, as Michael Jackson always does, um, by saying, well, maybe you're sort of exaggerating a little bit the fact that these people are becoming obsessed with that one avenue. And I was thinking... Uh, more about this and I was saying no actually and he he was saying that you know most people are are sort of trying different things right if one thing doesn't work they'll go they'll go somewhere else and what there's something about sport that actually prevents this uh, that this 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 obsession because I think it's also pleasurable so it's not work in the sense of you know cleaning washing dishes or or um, uh, repairing cars or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's this, this pleasure that can be also a source of life, a source of dignity. And that becomes quite obsessive, I think, for, certainly for the young men with whom I've done field work and, and some of my PhD students and postdocs have done field work in West Africa in... Uh, in uh, the Pacific Islands. And there, there is something really quite interesting about, about that sort of, that narrowing down of life possibilities. And I think that there is something probably taking place in a slightly different way with the people who walk through the, uh, across the Sahara and, and risk their lives um, crossing the, the, the sea, that that project becomes obsessive. That that it becomes uh, it becomes a, a life project in a end of it of its own and and shutting down other life projects. Uh, what do you think, Hassan? Well, I think um, yeah, what I'm thinking about is is that young people's imaginaries of stardom and fantasies of stardom. You know, that was a time where if you are from a working class or underclass background, you fantasize about military or priesthood as a way of actually engaging in social climbing. Right. And today you have joining a band <laughs> or doing sport. You know, as a kid you fantasize. So I'm, I'm not talking about just economic capital, right? right? Mm -hmm. Stardom in the sense I want to accumulate cultural capital and economic capital. Right. And so I might start playing my guitar and start imagining myself as a star, given the stars that I know and so copy, etc. And as a kid in Africa, I'm playing soccer and my mind, imagine now, I mean, Mbappe, sort of like how many young kids, so this is a 19-year-old. Not only is he making money, but he's an artist, you know, I mean, it doesn't take long, you watch him how he played the ball and you say, wow. And so as a kid, you're playing and so it becomes a becoming, you know, this is the fantasy. Like, like, you know, we wanted to become Led Zeppelin or become Frank Zappa and you become, etc. sort of, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think about the, the shutting down of life possibilities for, for outsider sports? So, you know, people who, who go to extraordinary risk that are sort of irrational, right? Yes. To try to, 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 to get into Libya and get beaten up and, 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 and I mean, what, what, you know, economics yes. is not... It's not the only... The exactly, only, yeah. that's a practice. No, no way. But I mean, it is, it is really about dramas of social closure. Mm -hmm when the world collapses on you and you feel it's collapsing on you. And uh, I don't think many people sort of like 
realize how dramatic this sense of social asphyxiation and that they say, why would you do this? Why would you risk taking your family on a boat that you're going to die? You must be an idiot or something. People have no idea what it's like to be in a space which is about to strangle you and that you need to escape. Well, sometimes it's yes. literal strangulation. Yes. 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 Exactly, uh, exactly. In the case of Syrians. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Well, that uh, resonates with having taught in the United States where uh, universities are full of these people on football scholarships uh, and they've been sort of promised everything and in order to uh, to take advantage of that they have to actually commit very narrowly to a particular kind of subjectivity, they have to cultivate a particular very embodied sort of subjectivity and so they're often, through no fault of their own, they're often awful students because they're, they're practicing five days a week and so there's this profoundly exploitative political economy that goes along with that set of aspirations um you know i'm thinking of it sort of reminds me of uh you know pink floyd has a song about uh um on wish you were here about uh we've been expecting you you've been in the pipeline for a while and it's very much the same with these uh really really aspirational uh college athletes i don't know if there's a globalization of that that goes along with the global aspirations of uh of sport and athleteship well, I think the the parallel between between the kid in Fiji who is who is trying to um, land a contract in France or Australia and the the, the inner city uh, um, uh, African American trying to um, get into uh, uh, professional uh, football or basketball um, through a college uh, felt, uh, uh, scholarship is 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 very very straightforward. Um, there's, I think that it, they both bring up uh, what you bring up is actually yet another element of the evolution that I was uh, talking about that starts with the 1980s with the neoliberalization of of sports and privatization of television and so on and that is the enormous surveillance um, that, that so the athlete himself and herself to a lesser extent himself then becomes a different object a different worker. Um, so one of my postdoctoral fellows was um, in my project uh, on global sport was um, in fact was a, a rugby player Daniel Guinness um, and he in the course of his uh, professional career in rugby saw the evolution the change um, when he first started he was actually um, you know drinking and and this this was a playful uh, career and at the end Every single, he describes every single moment of his existence being under the surveillance of others. Um, he is told to play even if he doesn't feel good, and if he feels good, he's told not to play. Um, he, every single, I mean, you know, so the, the athlete has been turned into a machine. And one of the physical manifestation of this, in rugby at least, is that the body becomes very different. So the average body size becomes enormous, Right, uh, you, you, I mean, sports studies people have, you know, demonstrated people getting taller. It's in part because of the migration, that's, which is yet another element of this. So, so you know, this is where these migrations begin, um, uh, because sports teams are so desperate to get, you know, the the raw talent, the uncut diamond that they will find in West Africa or the Pacific Islands or wherever. Uh, and and also the fact that that bodies actually inc physically increase single individuals bodies um, are are sort of fed um, uh, uh, um, watched over uh, told when to sleep and when not to sleep and, and in a way that they become they become yeah yeah I mean it's it's I'm I'm a little um, uh, suspicious sometimes of the of the slavery metaphor because I think that that there are some some aspects of slavery that just don't apply, but but there's certainly um, the, the, it's it's there's certainly a political economy to to to, to the system that 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 yeah. resembles that. It's a question of to what extent it's always relative, but to what extent you have a certain autonomy exactly. over over your own growth. Yes. 
to what extent your 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 growth as an individual as a body is not dictated by someone from outside of you and and what's interesting in in processes of exploitation it's always not necessarily 100% there might be cases but it's always mono development not diversified development so if they need you for your body that looks like skill doing this then they will you start developing your body as skill to do this and nothing else it's, it's, it's the same with monocrop economies uh, the whole history of colonialism uh, and sort of like and so you just go one thing and if you can't do this one thing or you finish with it you collapse and and you the social possibilities narrow and intensify at the same time yes yeah. now, which so I was actually thinking as as Nico was speaking about this wonderful concept by Pierre Bourdieu, which is the notion of social aging. So Bourdieu argues that that uh, social aging is very different from physical aging uh, because social aging is about precisely lack the decline of malleability. So when you are young socially. Uh, you can be a carpenter, uh, an intellectual, uh, a musician, etc. Social aging is the shrinking of these possibilities. So your body ossifies and you're no longer that malleable to be this or that or that or that. And suddenly you can be only this. And I think you can understand this process of transformation of the athlete's body as premature social aging, you know, as a premature ossification, such as you can no longer kind of like be a multiplicity. Mm. Well, ironically, it's also a literal a- premature aging in the sense that the body, the, the body of the athletes is essentially uh, destroyed by the career, a very, very short career that essentially destroys the body of... I'd like to move our conversation to the discipline, anthropology, I guess writ large. That's a sport. (laughs) (laughs) So these recent calls for decolonial anthropology, including for non-native anthropologists to kind of step aside, they might sound familiar to people uh, like yourselves who have a longer history in the discipline. Are we seeing something new here? Does this feel like the re-emergence of kind of familiar tensions um, and themes. Yeah, well, I mean, it, uh, some of it is familiar, but at the same time, if you start with something like uh, the idea, you know, Patrick Wolf's idea that colonialism is a structure, not an event, then you have to accept that everything we produced is marked still by colonial structures. And so the effort of decolonizing has to be permanent. It's not something you finish with because the structures we are embedded in feed and reproduce and produce new forms of colonial thought that sort of lack. And so you have to be vigilant. That's why I like Eduardo Viveros de Castro's concept of anthropology as a state of permanent state of decolonization of thought. The permanent is very important for me. This idea that it never stops. Now, there's, to me, there's something new in the intensity of the decolonial. Uh, I was actually, uh, recently I was writing about this uh, specifically as an afterward for the journal, Cambridge Journal of Anthropology. They have a special issue on decolonizing the curriculum and they asked me to write an afterward. And I was saying, it actually reminds me a bit of when I'm interviewing uh, first-generation migrants here who have been subjected to really vile racism. And they're telling me some really vile stories that happened to them. And in the end of it, they end up making it as if, uh, well, you know, that's what life is all about. And some of them even will say, oh, look, you know, we deserve it, you know. Uh, they, and, 
as they are doing this, the son or daughter will enter the room and say, fucking cops, they look at me the wrong way, what fucking country, it's unbearable, you know. And what they have been subjected to is so little compared to what their parents have been. But their sense of entitlement, the better, is so much greater. And I think uh, what we have today in the new wave of decolonial thought are people with a much greater sense of entitlement to better, which is a good thing, you know. you know, it's like, and I competed, when I first started teaching, you know, I was often the only non-Anglo in, in my department, you know. It wasn't a big deal, I can't say it was kind of like a horrendous post-colonial experience or anything like this, but still. You could say that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I was the only non-Anglo in my department. And I had to deal with things like uh, people saying, coming to me. That's one good thing. I was an engaging lecturer, so people didn't say it behind my back. But I had students coming to me and say, I can't understand your accent. And I kind of like never thought of my, I mean, obviously I thought I had an accent, but never thought of my accent as something which requires, you know, cultural shifts <laughs> on the part of the listener or something like this. But. You know, that's, that's, that was certain. Anyway, but what I was thinking was, what is the difference between a department where there aren't enough let's, people of color and they sit there and they don't say anything about it? And a department which doesn't have enough people of color but has enough people of color to allow them to say, there isn't enough people of color. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's the shift we are saying to, uh, seeing today. It's, it is the fact that there is more, there's not enough, but there's more and enough to make people capable and entitled to complain in a, uh, an intense manner about a uh, situation. It's one thing to call for, can we have, please, uh, Fanon included in among the list of great thinkers, uh, just one black person, uh, and another to say, decolonize the curriculum, which is really short circuit white people's intellectual inheritance completely. You know, mm. that takes entitlement. So I think we should. I I think we should look at the conditions of possibility of calling for decolonization and what what allows people and why and etc. But on the the other hand, sometimes when I listen, especially to the Americans, hello Americans, if you're listening, (laughs) you can be such a pain, you know, in terms of, I mean, it's like, you know, remind me of all Trotsky's sort of like parties. You missed, missed. Not Trotskyist, you know, you missed this paragraph in Marx, which because you didn't get it right, sort of like it's the end of you and you're going to die, all of you. And and this is sort of like a decolonial, but as opposed to the postcolonial, as opposed to the decolonial with whatever, sort of like each one of them is a little sect with a kind of, kind of like minor differences and intensity, unbelievable intensity. So what what worries me a little bit is is the equation of one dimension of human difference, um, namely race, with with the legacy of colonialism. Of course, you know race figures extremely prominently in the colonial uh, enterprise, but at the same time, um, if we're going to decolonize anthropology, I think that we need to go just beyond. So. Um, uh, anthropology so white, right, immediately sort of foregrounds whiteness as as the problem. But I think there are other problems, right? Um, and so when you hear that sort of that sort of stance from from people who are located at Stanford and Johns Hopkins, the, <laughs> right, this is where I I say, well, 
perhaps there's a little bit of reflexivity that needs to go into this and what is the institutional location also enabling these people to 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 exclude uh i think that that for example um um precarious labor and and it's not necessarily i'm not trying to say that while well, we need to look at gender or sexual orientation as well i mean i think that there are many other aspects of 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 decolonization that do not necessarily answer to a name and I think you know sort of social disparities of of, of various kinds of which the academe the academe is 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 full of that uh, need to be engaged with uh, in in a in a I mean in some ways I'm 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 more worried about precarious labor, academic labor than about the racial diversity of departments because I think focusing on the racial diversity of departments, well, of course, it's a very, very important thing, but it can actually blind you to other things that, that may be going on that are just as serious, if not more serious. It can work vice versa, too, but I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's Absolutely. important to think everything together. I mean, that's, that's one of the things where, what I like about this new crop. Of, of young decolonials. They're really quite keen on everything, go sexuality, etc., gender, identity, etc. I like that, I like that. I, I think it's healthy and shows uh, a high degree of uh, reflexivity, you know, sort of like that's uh, necessary. But at the same time, Sometimes I feel like they're saying, you know, it's, I mean, anthropology is a Western profession. Like, you know, it's, anthropology is a Western profession. It's a white profession. We can try and make it a profession for white traitors. Yes, I like the idea. I mean, I've been working with the notion of traitor and the uh, race traitor, etc. And I like the idea of the anthropologist as a race traitor. And, but that doesn't mean it stops being the tradition that it is, mm. you know. It's a Western profession. It's a profession too. I mean, it's quite interesting, the question of professionalism. Because sometimes uh, when people oppose anthropological thought, to native this or that thought. They're not opposing one professional thought with another professional thought. They're actually opposing someone who has spent 10 years writing something with some guy who is walking in the forest and says, I like blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it worries me that the question of labor disappears in this equation. Sort of like we labor on our texts, you know. I mean, I'm at, I'm very happy to, of course I am, I'm very happy with the valorization of indigenous thought, etc. But I don't want to make it as if kind of like the question of labor doesn't exist in the world. And that thought, I mean, that's precisely what neoliberalism does, this classic Marxist commodity fetishism. You look at products on the market and you don't look at the labor that has produced them and the amount of labor and the degree of, of care that has been taken, etc. So that worries me when people just juxtapose these, these, these ideas together. But of course we should be. And I think one of the most important things today is that idea that it's not enough to say, I am open to the thought of the other. Uh, but you have to say, I am open to let the thought of the other analyze me. So that, that leads me to ask about what anthropology and what anthropological knowledge does when it goes public or what, what sorts of responsibilities we have. I think both of you have made a point of uh, doing public work in various ways, uh, and clearly by doing this project, uh, the the podcast, we're val we're valuing public anthropology as well. But the kinds of knowledge that we create don't uh, they don't sit well in 
uh, in the publics that we currently have, you know, the, the sort of proverbial echo chambers and the, um, the, the hot take, you know, we, we don't speak that language necessarily. So how do you reconcile that? You know, what, what is a public anthropology? It's, it's not as simple as doing anthropology and then talking to the public about it. What sort of knowledge is public anthropology? And how does it speak to these other publics which don't speak our language? Well, I think public anthropology is becoming as urgent as it's ever been in the, in, in the age in which we live, of fake news, of, of received ideas that become enshrined in, in, in truth, regardless of, of their actual status. I think that that there is a real urgency to 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 the uh, to the project of uh, public anthropology. Um, perhaps one saving grace is the fact that um, we have this proliferation of of different ways of communicating, and which is actually the tool for fake news and 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 of of conservative agendas uh, that we can appropriate for ourselves. Um, and I think this is uh, perhaps the saving grace. We, we, we can't come up with a 10-second sunbite, uh, but, but there, there are many other venues, many other ways that don't necessarily uh, require uh, the 10-second soundbite, uh, which hopefully will reach uh, some sort of a public, perhaps not the public that's voting for Trump, uh, perhaps not the adherence to one nation and, and, and political positions like these, but then, you know, they live in their own echo chamber. And both of you have, if I can jump in, both of you have written about and made arguments of the sort that uh, are precisely being picked up in some form in certain uh, political counterpublics. You know, so the arguments in White Nation about the the close relationship between white supremacy, strictly speaking, and a broader a broader sort of white uh, white nationalism or white under underbelly, precisely that language is now picked up by people in memes on Facebook. You know, left leaning or, or social justice type people in memes on Facebook. And I'm not sure if you found the same sort of thing happening with what you've written about transgender identity. How does how do you feel about the traction that the kinds of things you've already written about are now finding? Well, I mean, to be quite honest, I feel depressed. <laughs> I, think, I, think, uh, I think I feel depressed that uh, the arguments I raised 30 years ago uh, to counter the white right people are calling me and saying, I read your book and it's so relevant to analyze uh, sort of like what's happening in the US. I said, sort of like I liked white nations so much, it made me under blah, blah, blah. And I said, boy, great. Uh, it's great for me. But it is depressing to think, really, talk about public intellect. So how little effect it has had <laughs> on, on changing the world or doing uh, anything, anything like this. Uh, with, so, 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 so that. But we so can't give up. Mm? We cannot give up. No, 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 of course not. I mean, no, even if it's... I mean, I don't give up by ethos, you know. It's not a, even an intellectual argument. But, but there is an issue uh, today with public anthropology when it dovetails with university, the neoliberal university's pressure on academics to engage in the propagation of their work, uh, kind of, because people sort of like don't seem to realize, for instance, that those, not all of them, but a good majority of people who vote for Hanson or vote for Trump. They don't respect you. <laughs> they think you're an idiot, right? Like, you think, oh, I shouldn't use ableist things and say, like, these people are 
kind of like deprived of intelligence. That's why the, you shouldn't do this. That's sort of like saying, but they do it to you. They think you're an idiot. They think you can't think, right? These are on a mass basis. So the field of being a public intellectual, of speaking, is not an open field. And you have to live with the fact that that's what universities don't want to face, that some people are your enemy. It's not... Your enemy does not listen to you to learn. Your enemy listens to you to bash you, to want to destroy you. That's what people do when they're your enemy. And we are, not by our choice, but our culture is a culture of enmity today. You know. If you don't have a warrior in you, forget it. Mm-hmm. This idea is that you can be a public intellectual and just speaking for everyone. No, I think we have to go back to the idea of the public intellectual as a warrior. As and I don't, I don't mind it. I don't mind it by temperament, by anything. I don't mind. <laughs> you know, I wanna. You know, I'm not interested in producing more. I mean, I produced in White Nation, oh, let's understand them and understand the conditions of production of this thought and then sort of like blah, blah, blah. And uh, I, can, I, can, I know this, this, this game, but these people listen to you and think you're an idiot. You have to understand that. If we don't understand that, we'll go nowhere. It's not that they say, intellectuals, thank you for enlightening me. <laughs> they never say that. <laughs> it kind of preempts the question about what sort of politics does anthropology constitute in its public engagements now, I guess. We've heard from Ghassan. What, what do you think about this, Nico? I mean, Ghassan is absolutely right in the sense that, that the Trumpists and, and similar categories of the world that just you know, hate you and, and despise you actually despise you more than hate you. Um, but at the same time, there is a lot in the world that's not, that's not Trumpist. So, I mean, there, there are a lot of people who just simply don't know, are just, you know, peddling in the dark and, and, and not quite know. And this is, this is I think, the public that, that we need to address. Uh, these are people who, uh, I mean, I remember, for example, in the... Um, in the uh, the the AAA vote on Palestine, right? So on on engagement with Israel Palestine, this was a good example of 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 of, uh, of a situation in which there are lots of people who are just at sea; they don't know what to think. And I remember many people coming to to me and saying, you know, I don't know what to do, right? And I'm not going to tell you what I told them, but. Uh, uh, because of my own positionality <laughs> in this. That's why we lost now. And <laughs> but, but this is a good example of, you know, it's a very, very minor kind of, kind of example. So where you, you know, these are not the enemies, right? But, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's, that ex- actually is the example of Palestine... AAA. Might be, it might be worth quickly explaining what, what you mean for the audience, what you mean by the AAA Palestine. So, 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 AAA, the American Anthropological Association, had a vote on BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions towards Israel. It was a huge vote. It was one of the hu- biggest attendance ever to a AAA forum. And there were thousands of people. And it was triumphant for BDS at the vote. This was, to be precise, this was a vote to put the vote on the ballot. That's right. So. Exactly. Institutional men. <laughs> uh, yes, that's true. Now, is this, I mean, it's actually very important to say that because it was a vote to put the vote on. And then... We thought, wow, like it was, it, we won by like thousands and thousands, sort of like, like 90%. Like 3,000 yeah. against 50 or something, yeah. yeah. Sort of like, and then the vote went to the anthropological community. Lots of people were shocked because we lost, you know. And the fact is that... By about 25 votes. Mm, yeah. yeah. 
But what is interesting, though, it's still interesting how people create bubbles and think the bubble is it, even if it was a big bubble. Part of, Not, yeah, the hugest bubble, huh? as you were saying before, the biggest bubble. I mean, yes, but think, I mean, now, think of the, all the talks that went around the hall. And the crisis that followed and the intensity of people. And you think all of anthropology is in turmoil. But after that experience, I look and say, you know, okay, I heard about maximum 100 people express themselves about whole crisis, etc., etc. All the rest, they don't care. They don't care about... But they about, don't know. Uh, yes. Yes, but when they know, they, the fact they didn't care l- makes people lean more towards conservatism. Right. I mean, because you don't just engage in something like the future of anthropology uh, or Palestine uh, at the last moment with a vote. You know, you do, and that usually you don't care, you keep the status quo. Uh, for the listeners who haven't heard about this already, the How Journal of Ethnographic Theory uh, was publicly called out by, anonymously by some of its former employees who tended to be uh, junior scholars or graduate students for abusive behaviour. And, and it raised a whole range of questions about power and uh, how journals and academic publishing in general treats junior scholars uh, and what sort of recourse people have when they've been abused, whether it's sexual abuse or any other sort of... Uh, abuse or exploitation. So hashtag how talk to my mind has sort of exploded and raised new, new layers of questions, but potentially only for a few hundred Twitter users. With, with the risk of being pedantic, one of the points was not to say how, but to say who. Because, mm. because that's what, uh, what the Maori contingent was saying, mm-hmm. that okay, you sort of like invest Mm-hmm. And, and name the German, at least maintain, you know, the mm-hmm. pronunciation, sort of like don't anglicize well, so much. Well, I think it's, I mean, it's it's an interesting case. I was on the periphery of it, uh, uh, being a journal editor myself. And, and, and in fact, what happens in one journal has repercussions on, on other journals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was uh, an early supporter, a material supporter of, of, of Ho. I think what it... There is so much enthusiasm for, for this open access. I mean, uh, 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 which I think we all agree should be, should is philosophically the direction we should be going in. At the same time that I think advocates of op- open access are so involved in, the, in stating that open access is going to open up scholarship. I mean, it's, it's, it's an investment of, of that is disproportionate with what it actually is doing to the extent that that I mean I've sat in many meetings about open access and there is sort of an evangelical zeal to uh, when you listen to to the the people who are enthusiastic about it that is actually sort of a bit suspicious about that that somehow this journal which is uh, right from the beginning, uh, uh, establishes itself as the open access solution or alternative to the conservative conservatism uh, of other journals, um, and will become an, you know open. It's going to be open and 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 in in multiple ways, and then it ends up not being that open, right? So. Um, the usual suspects uh, are invited to publish in it. I mean, just all the all the issues that have been raised, right? We read Marshall Salins, uh, Marilyn Strathern, and so on, because that's what is going to create, uh, bring attention to this. Well, in fact, other journals who are not open access, in fact, may be much more democratic and much more, might do a lot more work to bring in people from the global south or, or from other language uh, tradition, linguistic traditions, uh, junior scholars rather than uh, in, in, in addition to more established ones. I mean, we need the established ones to maintain journals, right? So, in fact, there is a little bit of irony in all, all this, that, in fact, 
open access being touted as as the, the 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 solution for everything, right? All the inequalities in which we're that we uh, of the discipline uh, in which we're embedded, while in fact, right, right in our face, we have gross inequalities, and not only that, but actually sort of very unethical uh, behavior. So I think I think this is the the the, and I don't know what the solution is. For you know, there is a, a financial issue which 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 it, to to uh, until now is on has not been resolved. Right? How do you? Uh, uh, maintain a journal with the quality of not just scholarship but also production and so on, just simply on donations. Yeah, it's 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 very very hard. So the you know the budget of the journal that I uh, that I'm editing is a six it's a six figure budget. So where does one get that? You know, other than from the market. Okay, so this issue has not not been solved. At some point. Things are going to have to change, but we simply don't know how they're going to change. All right, uh, we're going to have to cut it off there. Thank you both for joining us for another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. Today we've been speaking to Nico Besnier, uh, Professor of Cultural Anthropology at the University of Amsterdam, and Ghassan Haj, Future Generation Professor of Anthropology at the University of Melbourne. If you'd like to learn more about their work, you can find them via your favourite search engine or the links in the show notes. Uh, Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is produced by me, David Giles, and Timothy Neal, with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at DHBorderGiles, and Tim is at TDNeal. And if you enjoyed this episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere. 